Man, I hope you all are well. Happy Independence Day to, to you all, as this day is July 4th, and so I hope that you're able to celebrate that in some ways, in some forms, or however you do that today. And I'm so glad you're here this morning. Last week, we finished our series in Ezra and and Nehemiah, that one's now in the books, and so that was such a great study and, and really encouraging. I'm glad that y'all were here for that and leaned into that. For the stress of the summer, we're going to be starting a summer series on the church. We did that a, a few years ago. We did a summer series on the church, and it was very helpful. It was very encouraging, and, and we have grown uh, since then since then, and so we want to revisit some of those things and uh, even extend it out a little bit uh, in the middle, uh, and, and so that we would be encouraged and reminded once again of the church. It's one of my favorite topics I've grown really enjoy and love is the ecclesiology and the, and the church, and so that's why we've been honing in on this for so many years, on Wednesday nights in particular, and Sunday mornings uh, as, as well, and we very we often find of passages by applying it to the church and for that very reason because we need to be uh, built up. Um, when we first planted the church, this church, Sovereign Grace, we spent a lot of time digging through the scriptures together about what it had to say about the church. And we did this because the Lord, if the Lord was leading us at that time to actually plant a church, then we knew that we had to, that we had to be serious about it. And to be serious about it, we had to address God's word, and we had to do our very best by God's grace to get it right. And I believe that was a, that's a direct quote from, from Bill back in those days. Uh, in the beginning, when we first started planting and unpacking some of these things, for many of us, there were still some some fresh wounds of the consequences otherwise of not being a part of a, of a, a healthy church. And we felt that, and we, we understood that, and we, so we understood the importance of a healthy church. And maybe you too have felt the consequences of being a part of a church that wasn't healthy or hasn't understood what it means to be the church. And so I pray that these weeks would be encouraging to you, and I pray that you uh, be a part and lean into these, to these things. Uh, before we get to the first question that we are going to address today about the church, I want to give you a couple presuppositions that over the whole series that I will be uh, preaching. And, and first is, is I want you to know that from the get-go, I have no intention from these sermons to be slights or to denigrate any other churches uh, that maybe you've been a part of or maybe that you know of or other pastors. And, and by no means is this, is this to denigrate them or, or to be a slight toward them. We pray for other churches for that very purpose, so that we are not that way, but we are thinking about the kingdom of God, but also praying that they would preach the gospel and that the Lord would use them for his glory as he uses us for his glory. Um, you can be a true church, but still be irregular, right? 
Um, we, we talked a lot about that on Wednesday nights as we talked about the church history. Um, however, we, we don't want to be irregular. We want to be as biblical as possible, and it's because the scriptures are not deficient in these matters. And so that brings me to, second, to the second thing is, the second, we want to have a foundational assumption or presupposition that this series is, is, is from the Bible, and that the Bible is our final authority on, on all things, as in everything, in all of life, but especially who we are as a people and who we are as a church. So insert amen here. Amen, right? Because we are people who love the word and we want to be conformed to the scriptures as much as possible. Unfortunately, a lot of people, most people believe that the Bible is silent on how the church uh, is to be, and if it does say anything, that they are just mere suggestions. And the church is then just free to do whatever they want to do, and reaching out to people doesn't matter, right? As long as they're reaching people, as long as they're doing these things, then they're okay. Um, and, and we know that even though the Bible doesn't have a, you know, like an, an appendix in the back that gives you a sample constitution and bylaws that we are to use, uh, we do know that the scripture sets a precedent of principles over everything, uh, including what the church is and how the church is to be organized. And so that, uh, that supersedes our preferences or even what culture thinks church should be or what they think church should be appropriate or not. So we, the, the culture is now pressing upon the church what they think it should be, right? And so we say, no, we have the Bible, right? And then we need to understand that they're going to reject that. That's not here in the sermon, but, but they're going to reject that. But that is our presupposition is the scripture is our authority. Number three, when the Bible speaks about the church, it's Nine times out of ten, it is speaking about a local congregation. It's speaking about a local congregation, a real group of people who are members of that church, not just some abstract institution. So whatever the Bible teaches about the church, it is to be applied within a real congregation, within a local church. Paul's letters to, to the churches were to real groups of people that were meeting in real cities as the church with real members. And so we want to pray the Bible will always bear weight upon us. We want it to always bear weight upon us. And I'm using that word us meaning us. Not just us, but us. Not just them out there, but to, to us. And lastly, last presupposition is all goal and hope is that we and others will come to be free from the tyranny of human opinion. And when we see the scriptures clearly and sufficiently speak about the church, man, are we not bombarded with opinion? Opinion that's guised in fact or truth or whatever it may be. This is not my mere opinion. I would not subject you to that nonsense on a Sunday morning. Talk to me later and I'll give you all the opinions you want. 
But if God's church, when it is shaped according to his word, then it is a gift to his people when they live together in unity as Jesus desired and as Jesus prayed for us. This morning, the first question that we are going to deal with is the church, what is it? And I know that's a basic question. That's a very simple question. And it's like, well, I can answer that now and, and, and we all can go home. Most of us have been a part of a church our, our, our whole lives. We've grown up in church. We've lived in church. Most of us have, have, have gone to church our whole life. And, and, and if you took 10 people from, the, the, from Statesboro, from 10 different churches, and you ask them, what is the church? I bet at least 8 out of 10 of them would give you a, a totally different definition on what the church is and what it's purpose will be, and sometimes that's how they'll define it, is that the church is this, does these things. And some of those definitions might be, the, the church is a place we go Sunday morning to be with family for an hour. Well, not at our church, we stay longer an hour. It's just a place we meet. Some would say the church is a people who are devoted to feeding and caring for the poor. Others would say the church are is those who, who worship God. The church is where the next generation learns about spiritual matters to build relationships and with other Christians. The church is where the people of God come together each week to love and encourage and serve one another. The church is a group of people who all believe the same message and live together according to that message and reach out to others with that message. Now, most of these definitions and descriptions are partially true, and, and there's, some, there's some truth in them and, and, and certainly some things that we, we do, but does the church do good for others? Is, the, is it a people who encourage and builds one another up? Is it a church, is it a, a church, a people who evangelizes and disciples? And the answer to that question is yes, of course. But is that what a church is? Jesus uses the word church two times. Both times occur in Matthew's gospel, one in chapter 16 and one in chapter 18. We'll deal with those later on in the series, but it's, he uses the word, the Greek word ekklesia, which of course we get the word ecclesiology, and the, word, the root word in ekklesia is kaleo, which means to call, means to, to call, to call out. And when you put these two words together, ekklesia means an assembly or people that has been called out. So what is the church? The church is a people who have been called out. The church is those who have been called out by God's grace. Here's the definition. A people who have been called out by God's grace, who regularly meet together, where there are members who practice the ordinances, and together by God's grace glorify him. There are many good things that the church does. Many good things that the church does. I mean, we can do all kinds of things that are good, and we do good. We do good 
to one another. We help one another, serve one another, love one another. We do good. But what defines us is not what we do, but what defines us as a church is what God has done through Christ and has brought us into union with him. That is the church. The church is what God has done. Now, what's the point? If that's the church, what's the point? And for us to see that, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and read Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Paul tells the church in Ephesus the eternal purposes of the church. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To him, though I, the very least of all sinners, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the, the light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow the knee before the Father, with whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints that is the breath and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. In verse 10, it says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through us, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known. Verse 21, in the doxology, to him be glory. In the heavens, in the earth, in the church. All those other two are right. But Paul says, in the church, in the ecclesia, in the, the called out, and in Christ's generation, through, or Christ Jesus through all generations. What Paul is saying to us here is not something that's new. It may be new for people who are first reading it for the first time or first understanding it, 
But this is something that God has been doing from the very beginning. That through his people, he will be made known. It's playing through the computer, Abby. Preach Christina out. I'll pay for that one later. But I wanted to show I want to show you for a little bit here, walking through the biblical narrative, walking through the biblical narrative this morning, we're gonna see that this has been what God has always been doing. He's been building out this showing the purpose and point of the church. So we have to turn all the way back at creation. Genesis 126 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's a good text. It's a very good foundational text, and this passage tells us how and why God created man. He made us in his image. He has made us in his image. That means in his likeness. And there in the garden, he had made man perfect. And man perfectly reflected God's image and his glory and his character and God calls and commands man to reflect his image in the garden and you see the various ways to do that to exercise dominion over every area of life when you look in a mirror it reflects your image it's not who you are it's just an image of you it looks like you and the bible tells us how god's image is to be reflected by man here in genesis and that is to exercise dominion and authority over creation or how just like how god rules over his creation man is commanded to work and to subdue the earth to take what is here to take what is chaos and to put it into order and just like how god has done in creation he lovingly brings order where there was chaos god's called us to exercise dominion and as his image bears we are to be obedient to his word so the point of humanity we were designed, we were created, and commanded to represent and reflect God's likeness, character, and glory. We are to reflect what God is like, who he is. We image, we mirror who he is. But there's a problem. After creation, there is the fall. So like two pages over in your Bible, Adam and Eve chose not to reflect God's image. How? By being disobedient to God's word. 
They had run of the garden. They had each other. They had deep, intimate relationship with, with God. But God told them to not eat of one specific tree. Hey, all the others have at it, but not this one tree. And this tree was a, a symbol of God's authority. You are still my image. And this is a reflection of my authority still over you. But they chose to do what they wanted to do, to rebel against God. And in that rebellion, in the fall, there has been two devastating consequences. Number one, they were guilty of breaking God's law, God's word. God commanded them not to eat of it. And they ate happily, like we said last week, jumped in with two feet, breaking their ankles. And they did this. And that now has brought guilt before God. And second, they have brought corruption. They will surely die. Corruption in the nature of man. And here's what this means in the image part, department. It hasn't destroyed the image, but it has severely distorted the image. It is bent. It is distorted. Kind of like when if you go to the, to the fair and you, and you go up into one of those goofy fun houses and they got those wonky mirrors and you stand in front of one and your head is like this big and your, your feet are this big. Or you go to another and your midsection's this big and your head is this big. And it's kind of like that. Now our image, the image that we have reflecting because of our corrupt natures has now been distorted and corrupted. It's no longer clear. It's just like anyone in our world today. They all bear the image of God. Even in their sin, even if they re are rejecting the image of God, in every form and facet, they still bear that image. We still bear his image, all of us, though corrupted, though distorted, and though bent. Next in the, the, the biblical narrative and the story is, is Israel. God in his mercy and love doesn't destroy all of humanity and the whole human race but instead, what did he do? He chooses to save his people, to preserve his people, and to use his people to fulfill the original intent, intent from all creation. So again, like in the garden, to reflect the glory of God to the rest of the world, this was Israel. He called out Abraham, and he chose this guy, this, this bumbling guy from Iraq. That's where he's from. To, to be his people, to be the, the father of, of this nation. In this nation that, our, first it was his family, and then his family became so big, it became a nation. And then this nation of Israel became enslaved by Egypt. A lot of history here. Y'all know the story. And after 400 years of slavery, God would save his people out of slavery 
the Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 4, after Moses was called out to go as God's representative to Egypt, and this is what God tells Moses to tell to Pharaoh in verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. I mean, this ain't no man speaking here. Bad language, but Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Why does God call Israel his firstborn? Why does God call Israel his son? And here's why. Because sons are to follow their father's footsteps. And they are to look like and image their father. All my brothers and my sister, we, we don't look the same. We've been accused of looking the same, but we don't look the same. But we all look like, in some way, like my dad. We all look like him in, in, in some way. And, and, and I, as his son, I've picked up a lot of, of, of what he likes to do and, and his things that he enjoys, the sports and teams and things like that. I've picked up those things as well. And we generally enjoy doing the same things. And God's intent for Israel, for Israel, his son, is to display his character in nature to all the other nations and to all other peoples. That's what Israel was to be. It's why he gave them the law. This is how you reflect me and who I am. This is how you are to be holy as I am holy. This is how you are to be separate and distinct from all other nations. He doesn't save them and bring them out of Egypt and just says, all right, now you're free just to go wherever you want. No. He saves them and draws them out to prepare them to be a people, to be holy, to reflect, to image his character and his nature. And he warned them what would happen if they failed to reflect and to image and to follow God according to his law, that he would cast them out and send them into exile. And we know exactly what he has done. He did because they continually, passionately went after what they desired, what they wanted to do, choosing over and over again to reflect the world and not image their God. And that brings us to Christ. In Luke chapter 3, the moment after Jesus was baptized, in verse 22, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Again, we're seeing the, the same word, son, but this time it's different. And we, we know it's different. 
This time it is, it is different because this voice, God, calling down, saying down that this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This isn't Adam. This isn't Israel. This is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the second part of the Trinity. God had come now in the flesh. And because Jesus was the perfect representative of God, because he is the perfect Son. Jesus was not a bent or distorted image. He wasn't the bent or distorted mirror, but he perfect, that perfect, clear image. He imaged God perfectly. The Bible says in Hebrews 1.3 that, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance. Reflection, image of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He was what Adam should have been. He was what Israel should, has, should have been. This is why Jesus says to Philip, who wanted to see the Father. Philip says, I want to see the Father. And Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. As God's perfect representative, Jesus came and he solved those two problems that we found, that we heard back in the beginning in the fall. The two problems of, of the fall, guilt and corruption. Jesus wasn't corrupted because he was the Son of God. He had no guilt because as the perfect, sinless representative and the son that Adam should have been, he had no guilt, he had no corruption. He has solved our guilt problem because he was the perfect, spotless sacrifice for our guilt, perfectly atoning for the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He took away Adam and Eve's guilt, dying and paying the penalty of our sin, taking care of all of our sin's problem and guilt and corruption. Insert amen here. And that brings us to the next place, and that is the church. Again, the church is made up of everyone since the cross who has been called out who have been called out and who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ as their perfect representative. The church is not made up of people who, by their own efforts, are making themselves better or making other people better. How long would that take us before we implode, if that was it? But rather, we have been broken by sin, but yet we are trusting in Jesus as our Savior. And we are living according to his grace and as we sung this morning of his mercy as one body in Christ. 
hear another passage about the church from Romans chapter 8. Y'all know this very well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here it is. Beloved church, what God is doing in us What God is doing in us is what he has been doing for all eternity. To conform his people into his image. To be conformed to to his image, the image of his son. You see that in verse 29. We have been predestined to be conformed to his image. We have been called out, predestined so that we would be called, and because we've been called, we have been justified by the work of Christ, and since we have been justified, we will be glorified, and we are being conformed into his image. And what does it mean to be conformed into his image? It means to display God's character his likeness, to reflect his holiness, his goodness, his loving kindness, his truth, his glory, and his justice and his righteousness to the world. I read an Instagram post by Owen Strand, right? And it, was, it went something like this, is what the, the world needs is not the church to reflect what the world wants, but the world needs is a church that reflects God in the end of God. Because we're to be different. We're to be distinct and salty and have a taste. I don't mean like a salty sailor. I mean like a like saltiness and a taste. Distinction. To display his likeness. That's Christ. His holiness. We want to display Jesus. We say that. Man, I've heard people say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. But they don't want to be holy. How can you be like Jesus and not want to be holy? To display his glory to the world. Display his justice and his righteousness to the world. The point of our election. The point of our calling, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification is that we would reflect the likeness of our Savior. That we would be mirrors reflecting our Savior. Be conformed to his image. It is in Christ and through Christ that we are being conformed to his image. So what does that look like? Well, Jesus gave us an idea in the Beatitudes. 
in describing what the kingdom of God looks like, that we are to be peacemakers, that we are to be meek, that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we are to hunger for, for God's word, that we are to love our enemies, that we are to be quick to forgive those who offend and hurt you. And there's so much more in reflecting Christ. All of these things that God has shown us in his character and in his nature, particularly in his son, we are to reflect. And he has given us, brothers and sisters, let's not diminish this small point. He has given us his spirit (laughs) to do so. He's indwelling in us, and that spirit is declaring to us, again, Romans 8, Galatians 4, a spirit of adoption and not slavery, a spirit of sons. Your son, reflect his image. The church is meant to reflect what God is like to the watching world around us and to reflect his holiness. The world does not need more people like them. They need more people like Christ. The last place, the last place as we walk through the biblical narrative is in the consummation, in eternity, in heaven, in glory. And John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 shows us what we will be like. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God. And we're not just called that. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him, is that it did not know him. Beloved We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. You see, we already right now, we're reflecting God's image. And by his grace, we have been made new and regenerated and we're being, we've been transformed. And so that mirror is still slightly distorted and corrupted from the nature of, of, of sin still. And we still bear the weakness of flesh. And we still feel that and the difficulty of reflecting the image of Christ. But as John tells us here, what we are now is not it. What you are now is not it. There's something more. There's something more to come. And he, and he says, we are children now. We know what was going to has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, what is it? That we will be like him. When he appears, when he returns and gets to himself, his bride, his church, And as we have been striving to prepare ourselves for that wedding day, we will not be completely ready 
But when he comes, he will make us ready. He will make you in his likeness to perfectly reflect him. It's only then will we mirror him and the image will be very clear as he shines like the sun shining in a mirror. We will reflect his image. Amen? We worship God by displaying his likeness and testifying his word and, and testifying in word and action to God's great redemptive work in Christ. That's where we are until he comes back and he makes all things new. That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of Sovereign Grace Church is to reflect the image of our Savior until all eternity. And so if that's true, what does that mean for us? Let me give you a few practical things from this. First, God intends to use the life of his church, his people, to display to the world his image that he has intended them to see, his glory. Here's what that means. In the Christ in you and in I, we are to reflect the image of God in a way where you, or when the angel, you and I are engaged in this church. You cannot display love, peace, forgiveness, patience that are all to be applied within the body of Christ if you're just sitting at home by yourself. It's just you there. There's no one there to irritate you. There's no one there to, to offend you. And there's no one there that you have to forgive and to love in the ways that we have been called to do so. But if you stick around here long enough, you're going to have to forgive. And you're going to have to love. And you're going to have to bear with. And you're going to have to give grace in displaying the characteristics and the likeness of Christ to people who don't deserve them. Do them anyways. Because we not only have been called to do so, but that's reflecting the image of God. Doing life together in these ways and displaying his likeness is what God intends us to do. Second, the church is marked off from the world to be a distinct people. Most of us are probably okay with being different from the world. But our problem is not just being different, it's being distinct. Our, our distinctiveness is what's going to make us countercultural. And in our countercultural, Distinctiveness, that will give us opportunities to be different, to be distinctive. Think about how we do Sunday mornings together. The things we are doing, the things that we do, they are meant to be countercultural. They're intended to be different from the world. In a very anti-authoritarian age, we, we come, and what do we do? 
We submit ourselves to the Word of God. We submit ourselves to to one another. We, We listen to the Scriptures as what? As our authority. We let it bear weight upon our lives. If if there's something in our life that is not lined up with the Word of God, we line our lives with the Word of God. We don't change God's Word to line it up with us. We let it bear weight on us. And in our shallow and rootless age, we want to be unplugged from our screens, and we want to dig deep and be connected with our past. People today are afraid of earnestness. I mean, they're terrified of it. They're terrified of honesty. Brothers and sisters, we're terrified of silence. But we we want to stand in being distinct and display that we are doing things differently. We are doing things deep. We want to be connected to one another in honesty, in earnestness, and even sometimes in silence together. We are not in a hurry. This isn't a well-choreographed show or program. We have a liturgy. We have a plan. There it is. But it's not what moves us. Our distinctiveness is the scriptures, the gospel. And therefore, we reflect God's image as a church. We reflect that. And that's what's going to make us distinctive as a countercultural people. Third, the mission, outreach, and evangelism of the church is bound up in our distinctiveness as we display the character of God. Did you get that? Our mission, our outreach, and our evangelism is bound up with our distinctiveness, which is to display the holiness of God, the character of God. We can't separate the two. What's the point in bringing someone into the church if it's meaningless? If it has no distinctiveness, if it has no change, this is why, frankly, this is why liberal churches are dying. Because they're bringing people in and they're offering them nothing. And this is why church membership, discipline, and discipleship are so important. If we allow open, unrepentant sin in the church and we have no distinctive message, then we might as well shut this whole thing down. Because if we have nothing distinctive to offer, if we have no image to reflect, what in the world do we have? We're wasting our time. We might as well go ahead and prepare for Fourth of July festivities. You should have slept in. Joke's on you. We're wasting our time. Now, I'm not saying we walk in perfection, but we reflect God's holiness and grace through the gospel. Fourth, 
as the church, we find our life in the continual proclamation and rehearsal of the gospel. The church is the people who have been called out. We've been created by the gospel, by his word. The gospel is the message of our sin, God's love, Jesus' on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And our new life through the forgiveness of those who have all repented and have believed in faith in who Christ is. This is distinctly what Christianity is. Only the church can proclaim this message. And without the gospel, we would have no living hope. No hope, no living hope, and nothing in how to live distinctly, distinctively different from the world. So how do we do this? I'm going to close it with this. How do we do this? If the purpose of the church is to live out the glory of God and display his likeness, how do we live out this calling? The answer to that important question is by listening to God's word. We listen to God's word. In each of those biblical places we walk through in the narrative, we see the fundamental element of God's word in creation. God created through the word, through his word. He spoke the universe into existence. God spoke and Adam and Eve was created. He commanded them with his word. He instructed them on what they are to do through his word. Even when man depended upon God's word to speak to him, to them, even then. In Romans 1, Paul unpacks this. To know God in a saving way, we need his word, not just nature, not just pictures, not just smells. We need his word. In the fall, Adam and Eve did what? They disobeyed God's word. He tells them how they should be, with his law. And he gave them his word and they rejected it. The law then was given to Israel. Israel disobeyed God's word. Jesus, who is the very word of God, who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus perfectly reflected the image of God as the eternal son. And he was perfectly obedient to God's word. And yet now in the church, the church is commanded to listen to God's word and to be obedient to God's word. It's in the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. What are you teaching them? How to play baseball? How to be a better fisherman? No, we're teaching them God's word. Now, you could be fishing and be teaching them God's word. Amen. <laughs> I said that one just for y'all. I was waiting. He was kind of, kind of slow there. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, my word. We listen, we read, we study God's word so that how, why? Why do we do that? so that we know how to reflect his image. 
Not just so that we can be obedient to some commands. No, so that we can reflect God's glory and His likeness in eternity and in heaven. It shows us that there will never be a time when we will not be listening to God's word. You see, displaying the image of God in obedience is listening to God's word. So then our goal as a church is to be what? Centered on God's word. And fundamentally, brothers and sisters, this is where the church rises and falls. Music programs, student ministries, senior adult ministries, those do not kill churches. It's when the church stops listening and being obedient to God's word. Success in a church is not buildings. It's not people in the seats or programs, but in a church who listens to God's word. That's not why. That's why it's not hard to see so many congregations who have gone apostate. The measure. Do they listen to God's word? Or maybe we can even take a step back further and say, do they even believe it's God's word? This is why everything we do is Bible-centered. We preach all the way through books of the Bible. We read the Bible out loud in our services. We pray it, we study it, we sing it. And brothers and sisters, isn't that good news for our little church here? That we don't need the flashy, the cutting edge, the fancy things, the screens, websites, computers, elaborate musics and apps and etc. all those things. We just need God's word. We just need his word. We just need the, the scriptures. And, and sure, we'll, we'll take some air conditioning, Lord. Thank you for that. But the measure of our faithfulness as a church is only measured by God's word. We absolutely have a desire and pray to see more people coming to Christ through the ministry of the church. But our success is not in numbers, but our faithfulness to the word of God. It's good to be well thought of in the community. In fact, I believe that's biblical. It's good to be well thought of and have a good reputation in Statesboro. But again, that's not the measure of our success. It's our faithfulness to God's word. Because one day, brothers and sisters, in our city, we may not have a good reputation for the very fact that we hold a firm grip on God's word. So we have to be, as a people, satisfied in the face of in the face of such opposition, if it comes, and the temporal consequences that may be imposed upon us and be resolved to be obedient to God's word and to listen to God's word. So here's the thing. I know I've used the quote before, and I love using this quote. 
It's a quote of Charles Spurgeon, and he called the church the dearest place on earth. This is the dearest place on earth because of the work of Christ in each and every one of us and how that image is being reflected off each other each week. As the church, we live and we strive by His grace to reflect and display the image of our Savior to this world. And this is what Paul was getting at all the way back to Ephesians 3. That through us and our life together, God is showing his manifold wisdom that he may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The Christian life, our Christian life, your Christian life is shaped by the church and the church is shaped by God's word. This, brothers and sisters, is what we are doing. Your life should reflect more of the image of God, his holiness, his grace, and, and love being a part of God's church. It should be growing in more and more of these things. And it is worked out in the church. So I encourage you this morning, and as we finish up, to lean in and to press in more into the dearest place on earth. The church, God's gift, a gift to his people. Because now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever.